Hey, this is a Hakawari production. My guest today is a human rights lawyer and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C. She and her team recently published a report called Breaking the Israel-Palestine Status Quo. That sounds like a good plan. Please welcome Zaha Hassan. Hi, Zaha. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I just want to start off by making it clear that I'm by no means an expert on foreign policy or politics, but I, like a growing number of people on this planet and in the U.S. also, I'm really disturbed by this ongoing bloody conflict in Palestine and Israel. Um, this cycle of oppression and uprisings just keeps repeating itself, and I'd really like to see it resolved in my lifetime. Um, you seem pretty well connected to strategists in Washington. Do you think that might happen? Are you hopeful that the status quo might change? Not in the near term, I don't think. Uh, but I, I agree with you. It, there is this cycle that we keep seeing uh, over and over again. We just saw it recently with respect to the high-intensity violence um, between um, Hamas and Gaza and um, Israel. But um, But really, we also saw some uh, developments inside of Israel with Palestinian citizens of Israel and, and mob attacks against them by, um, by Israeli uh, Jewish uh, citizens. Um, and then, of course, in the occupied territory. So we're starting to see not just these, um, you know, flare-ups and high-intensity violence between uh, Hamas and Gaza and, and Israel on the other hand, but we're starting to see Palestinians, whether they're citizens, whether they're refugees, whether they're um, living under occupation in the occupied territories, uh, really addressing and confronting the oppression that they all experience, which is that coming from Israel um, as the only authority that has jurisdiction over the entirety of that land area. Right. Um The U.S., though, has a long track record of standing behind Israel and those kinds of things that, that they do, no matter what, regardless of what human rights organizations say. Um, you've described U.S. policy as bomb, rebuild, repeat, uh, and protect Israel. So do you think there's a bit of a shift now? Do you think in this uh, in this time of high mediatization of, of the conflict, do you think there's a change in the level of unconditional support in some minor way? We're definitely starting to see um, sort of this bipartisan support for Israel in Congress start to shift a bit. Um, it began to shift really under President Obama with the sort of um, contentious relationship that he had with the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu and sort of the lack of, you know, respect uh, or decorum that, that existed between um, Netanyahu and, and Obama. And then we just saw it sort of snowball in terms of, um, you know, Israel trying to undermine U the U.S. interest in concluding uh, Iran nuclear deal, deal. And then just in sort of the repetitive, egregious use of um, U.S. weapons by Israel Uh, against occupied people. And I think now um, they're starting to develop sort of a, a critical mass of um, members of Congress that are speaking out, particularly about the misuse of security assistance in, um, 
in the occupied territories against children in terms of uh, home demolitions um, and the dislocation of families and, and the dispossession of families. And so we see recently we saw um, Representative Betty McCollum with 13 co-sponsors in the House um, put forward a bill that would uh, restrict U.S. Uh, security assistance to Israel so that Israel can't use it um, in its settlement enterprise, basically confiscating land and dispossessing families and incarcerating children. Um, and, and now we have one of the um, most prominent Jewish lobby groups in the U.S., J Street, uh, endorsing that, uh, that legislation, which should help to get it to garner even more, um, more support. But really, um, I think the latest the latest escalation in violence that we saw um, during the month of May has really gotten a lot of people thinking about U.S. policy um, towards um, Israel Palestine, particularly given how that last episode really brought to life the findings in the Human Rights Watch report that was released in April that, that essentially found that Israeli officials are guilty of the crime of persecution and apartheid against Palestinians, uh, whether they're in you know, the West Bank, Gaza, or inside of Israel living as citizens. So tell us about this report that you just uh, recently published, Breaking the Israel-Palestine Status Quo, which is basically what's been happening for the last, what, 60 years, 70 years, uh, which calls for a new U.S. approach to peacemaking that centers on rights and human security over what you call palliative measures. And it proposes a shift in foreign policy, basically. So what's the gist of it? So basically the the uh, paper, which, you know, was um, was drafted as a part of a, a almost two-year process of engagement with not just other um, experts, think tank experts, but also former officials um, in the Obama administration. There were there were uh, staffers from um, the House and Senate. There were um, people that are engaged. Um, in human rights advocacy work. And we all got together over the course of this um, uh, almost two year period to talk about what was wrong with US policy. Um, why haven't we seen you know, peace break out um, after more than two decades of negotiations and what could be done um, given the grave human rights situation currently existed on the ground. And th the reason why we need a new approach obviously is there is no two state solution in sight. In fact, there's no political solution at all in sight. What we have is, as I said earlier, a situation of apartheid at this point. The status quo is not static. You know, annexation is creeping along by Israel. And doing nothing means accepting the fact that Israel is going to extend its sovereignty over the entirety of historic Palestine. Um, the area between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, and leaving Palestinians, who, who now um, are more than the majority of the population within that area, disenfranchised. Um, and, you know, the paper also acknowledges that there's an asymmetrical relationship here. You know, 
as I said, doing nothing means allowing Israel to have a free hand. And when you have a situation where one party is the occupying party and the other is the occupied people, and the U.S. is providing one side, the occupying uh, side, um, you know, $3.8 billion per year in aid, it's not enough to say we have, there's nothing we can do because there's no political solution in sight. The U.S. is invested uh, heavily invested in the Israel-Palestine uh, situation, and therefore it needs to figure out um, a recalibration of its um, policy so that it can better move the parties in a direction of a political solution, whatever that might look like, that respects the rights and uh, and human integrity of both parties. So we call for a rights-based approach. And what that essentially means is we need to center the rights and protect people first over relaunching or prioritizing a peace process. Because in the past, what we've done in the U.S. um, or U.S. policy has done is to say, you know, we're not going to focus too heavily on Israel's continuing settlement construction because we want to encourage them, uh, encourage uh, the Israeli government to come to the negotiating table. So as a way to encourage um, Israel to come, the U.S. deprioritized international law and deprioritized taking action against human rights violations because it didn't want Israel to to shun peace talks. It wanted to encourage Israel to come to the table. But what Israel learned from this over the years was that, oh, all we have to do is participate regardless of whether we actually conclude an agreement with Palestinians. And we will have U.S. protection in places like the U.N. Security Council and at the International Criminal Court. So obviously this created a warped incentive structure for Israel. It, it, it allowed Israel to go from 240,000 settlers in 1993 when negotiations started to today where we have almost 700,000 settlers inside the um, occupied West Bank. And they represent now 25% of the population. So, so centering rights um, and protecting people essentially means to you know, uh, ending this this warped incentive structure that has allowed annexation to creep along and to start creating new incentives for Israel uh, to comply with international law and to come to the negotiating table eventually in good faith. I imagine now uh, the bill you mentioned and and your paper must have must be ruffling a lot of feathers. A lot of people, you know, uh, we know that in 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 the U.S. Uh, the lobbies for pro-Israeli Zionism are pretty vocal and powerful. But um, have you had a chance to meet with lawmakers to discuss um, your paper? Is it, is, uh, you know, how is it being received? Actually, I mean, in terms of um, media reception, it's been amazing to see how hungry people are for a new approach. And I think... um, because of what we saw happen in Sheikh Jarrah, the forced displacement or the attempted forced displacement of refugee families that took refuge refuge there in 1948, um, we you know when we saw that happening, and then we saw the um, you know the heavy-handed Israeli police um, deployment, you know inside of the Al Aqsa uh, 
mosque esplanade and inside the mosque itself with tear gas, rubber bullets, um, stun grenades um, on, in a holy month of Ramadan, on one of the holiest days in the holy month of Ramadan in a, the third uh, most sacred space for Muslims. There was a lot of um, questions asked about exactly what are, uh, you know, what are we supporting? What, what are we as Americans supporting? And, and there was, there was some very good um, coverage of not only of, um, you know, what was going on uh, in the, you know, abroad, but also in terms of like what, what our paper was saying, which was, you know, where are the rights <laughs> uh, in this equation? who's protecting the rights of the people and um, a lot of interest in also the Human Rights Watch report, which are, talked about these very measures. So, so the media response was pretty, was pretty good, I think. Um, in terms of members of Congress, that I think there was a really good reception for our paper, again, because of the timing um, coming just before the Human Rights Watch report and then also um, you know, the situation on the ground, which is still unfolding every day. I mean, just yesterday in Sheikh Jarrah, you had, um, you know, considerable flare-up with um, the families that are living there by, uh, you know, settlers attacking them. Um, and the police uh, failure to, to really protect the families. And so um, members of Congress are asking the right questions, I think, now and, um, and want to know more. I don't think we're at a place yet where you can see the kind of uh, political power that are going to help undergird congressional action uh, in a way that it would need to uh, in order to actually see a bill like Betty McCollum's bill to protect Palestinian children from incarceration um, in military courts and protect families from displacement. I don't think we're, we're at that point yet. But what we have seen is really a shift in the way Americans are starting to think about it. We're seeing polling um, trending more towards uh, support for Palestinian human rights. We're seeing um, uh, polling within the Democratic Party that is supportive of putting uh, sanctions on Israel for failing to comply with its obligations. So the, the movement of travel is in the direction of greater support for an approach like the one we advocate for in the, in, um, the Carnegie Endowment paper um, co-authored with the U.S. Middle East Project. We're seeing a lot, we're seeing more uh, support coming uh, over time, but it's not going to be, you know, anytime soon that we'll find the kind of um, political power needed to to move Congress um, uh, in, in the numbers they would need to move. Yeah. So how challenging is it to be an advocate for Palestine in Washington, a place uh, where basically anyone who criticizes Israel or Israeli policies automatically labeled as anti-Semitic? Has it been a challenge? You know, for sure, the um, it's Washington, D.C. is not a friendly place for those advocating for Palestinian rights. Uh, you know, the narrative in Washington, D.C. is heavily um, influenced by the lobby interests that have a strong footing in this, uh, in this city. And that definitely is not human rights uh, advocates. Um, it's uh, for, for Palestine. It's, it's um, definitely pro 
Israel lobby groups and, and lobby groups that really are, are trying to legitimate the Israeli settlement enterprise and a greater Israel um, outcome. And, and also, I should note that it's not limited to um, Jewish Zionists, but it's also, you know, Christian Zionism has also um, grown in political power and strength. Um, and we saw just how much during the Trump administration where we had, um, you know, really the, uh, new, new, or, new lobby groups taking over APAC, the American Israel uh, Public Affairs Committee, in terms of the access and ability to influence the direction of U.S. policy. So that's, that's where um, the, the influence is today. Uh, Palestinian uh, policy analysts are few in Washington, D.C., um, and those advocating for a human rights-centered perspective are few in, you know, the mainstream think tanks um, in town. But they're, they're there. I'm, I'm among them, and the numbers are growing. I think that as we see the progressive movement uh, continue to embrace uh, Palestinian human rights and, um, and really placing it within the larger framework of a foreign policy that, that is more um, a deliberate in the way it uh, addresses um, grave situations and in conflict zones like Israel-Palestine, we're going to see uh, that translate into more space in Washington, D.C., for um, perspectives like mine and perspectives that, that really um, seek to put human rights at the center of U.S. foreign policy. Before I let you go, I want to ask you this. You have a pretty firm grasp on all the facts. You have the credentials to weigh in on this topic for sure. So in one sentence, in your opinion, how should the U.S. specifically and actionably change their foreign policy in one, in one sentence? Put rights first. and. Um, and think about people. Put rights first. I would, that, that's what my one sentence would be. I think that in the end, it, comes, it will come back to U.S. Uh, national interests and only strengthen the U.S. Uh, capacity for good uh, outside of U.S. borders. And unfortunately, maintaining an exception with respect to Israel is only undermining U.S. interests, uh, foreign and domestic. Yeah, it's a big exception. I'd say there are a few other exceptions, but I think also the U.S. is ripe for um, uh, improving that aspect of their reputation on a global level. I think uh, I agree with you on that. Uh, Zaha Hassan, best of luck with uh, all the work that you're doing. Um, keep it up. And thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the podcast. You can read Breaking the Israel-Palestine Status Quo for yourself online on carnegieendowment.org. And be sure to follow TMR on your favorite platform. The show is going on hiatus for a bit, but we'll be back soon. See you then.